Hey, this is Dan. Ahead of our second episode, I wanted to share a little bit about our process with you all. So Max and I started recording this show about a year ago in April 2020. We wanted to get a hang of what it felt like to work together to develop our workflow. So we banked a handful of episodes with the plan to keep a pretty casual release schedule of one or maybe two shows a month so that you can read along if you choose. We are so excited to be putting this out in the world, and if you've been listening, or if this is your first episode, thank you so much. Even though this project isn't about current events or political commentary, it is, as we talked about in our intro episode, absolutely a project of the current moment. So it's important to note that this episode was recorded in June of 2020 in the midst of the George Floyd uprisings, uh, which took place across the country, but specifically in Minneapolis, where I live. And I'm recording this introduction in late April of 2021, when the city of Minneapolis and Brooklyn Center are currently under occupation by the National Guard as part of so-called Operation Safety Net, a joint task force called between the city, county, and state to suppress another uprising in the wake of the murder of Duante Wright. Not all of our books feature mass action, but Embassy Town does, and I think the mood and the continuity of this mood feature in this episode. We won't be recording this kind of intro for all of our shows, but it felt right to do now. And I also want to note that the audio quality on my end increases substantially over the course of the next couple episodes. So with that out of the way, I hope you enjoy the conversation. the Unseen Book Club, a podcast about narrative and radical politics. I'm Max. I'm Dan. In today's episode, we're talking about China Mieville's 2011 novel, Embassy Town. So Dan, you suggested this novel. Do you want to tell us a little bit about China Mieville? Yeah. Uh, well, I can say that I've been a reader of China Mieville for a long time. I haven't read everything he's written, but everything he's written, I've enjoyed immensely. And I first read Embassy Town seven or eight years ago. And when we were discussing books to read, this one came up for me as a, a science fiction book that explored themes that we want to talk about. But I couldn't really remember, like, the why. So it was really exciting to dive back in. China Mievel is a writer of the weird. Uh, he's, a, he's definitely a genre writer. He kind of weaves in and out of fantasy and science fiction with horror elements. Some of his work, I guess you could call it steampunky, but that just means, like, 19th century urban weirdness. Of interest to us, he's also a committed 
leftist. Uh, I don't know his politics, how he would characterize them. He's, he's actually, I kind of do. He's a Trotskyist. He is. Which, okay. Which, like, I don't, I don't know what it means to be a Trotskyist in the 2010s and 2020s, but um, <laughs> this might be. He's also he's British, so you know, there's a context there that I think uh, we're missing about kind of party communism. But um, oh yeah, that's yeah, that yeah. is his his thing. Cool. Um, admittedly, I don't know what it meant to be a Trotskyist in the tw- 20th century. Um, but yeah, he edits the leftist kind of journal of commentary and cultural critique salvage, uh, which I've enjoyed quite a bit. And what's cool about China is that he brings his political interests and worldview into most of his work without being didactic or like he doesn't he's not trying to convert anybody through his work. And he says that in interviews, but it's just something that's very clear. And yet he sets all of his characters up in relationship to really well-rendered political systems. Mm -hmm. So he's always got one eye to like the politics of a world, whether it's like factional politics at the level of like a bureaucracy or a city or kind of bigger world political economy. Um, And I just think that makes him a really exciting person to read uh, as a fan of genre and as a, as a radical. But what he says is that he just likes to write about monsters and of course he's going to bring his worldview into it. So yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I'll cut in. He like takes an obvious Joey and just describing, you know, talk, talk about as a writer with a weird, but like describing weird stuff, describing things that are outside of uh, human comprehension, which we'll get a lot into in this book. And you can yeah. tell that he just, he likes to do that. That's part of the book and part of the joy of reading him. Absolutely. I actually have a quote from him from an interview that might be worth reading that kind of summarizes what we just talked about. So he, he has said, quote, I'm not a leftist trying to smuggle in my evil message by the nefarious means of fantasy novels. I'm a science fiction and fantasy geek. I love this stuff. And when I write my novels, I'm not writing them to make political points. I'm writing them because I passionately love monsters and the weird and horror stories and strange situations and surrealism. And what I want to do is communicate that. But because I come at this with a political perspective, the world I'm creating is embedded with many of the concerns that I have. I'm trying to say that I've invented this world that I think is really cool and I have these really big stories to tell in it. And one of the ways that I find to make that interesting is to think about it politically. If you want to do that too, that's fantastic. But if not, isn't this a cool monster? Um, You know, he says it more succinctly than we can. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think think that kind of gets the heart of what I've seen from his style. Um, Yeah. And so I, I just remember like Embassy Town being like that and bringing up these feelings in me. And I was so excited to get back into it and like revisit it and see if I still felt the same way. As an, as an aside, before we go into the book, have he also, I think, uh, for our listeners, wrote a 
history of the Russian Revolution three years ago in 2017, the 100-year anniversary of the Russian Revolution called October, um, that I would definitely recommend to anyone who's interested in kind of a popular history of the revolution. And I think shows his scope. It's, it's obviously partisan, um, but I think well-researched and shows his scope as a writer as well and strays towards his fantasy style in a funny way to, to read in a, in a history book as well. I mean, I think we'll be talking about October later because in my view, some of the themes of Embassy Town are straight from his study of the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm. Interesting. I'm, I'm interested to hear about that. The thing about discussing Embassy Town in particular is it's got a pretty ornate world-building setting, and the plot is pretty complicated. So we're going to have to front-load the discussion with a little bit of a plot summary and a description of some of the key elements in the story. Uh, and I was, as when I was reading this, I was hesitant because I really didn't want to do a book review yeah. um, discussion. And I was concerned that, oh man, this is just, we're just going to have to talk about geeky world building stuff. And that's not, you know, I don't want to talk about the cool monsters. Um, that's for people who want to read the book. Here's a quick summary of the book. Uh, Embassy Town follows the perspective of Avis Benner Cho as she returns to her home city, Embassy Town, after years of piloting spaceship vessels in, quote, the Immer. Embassy Town is the sole human-occupied city on a distant planet, home to sentients called Ariakai or Ariaki. Embassy Town is a trading colony distantly ruled by a galactic imperial power, Bremen. The Ariakai produce unique and valuable technologies and speak a language with unique properties that only specially bred and trained humans can speak. The book weaves between Avis's reflections on her childhood and past, observations on the political and social intrigue among Embassy Town's political and social elite, and the discovery of new meanings in a society she once thought fixed and unchanging. The narrative evolves as imperial politics and linguistic theory collide to produce a total social rupture. Within the chaos of a society rapidly undone, Avis unwittingly transforms her subject position within Embassy Town, and more importantly, the language of the Arakai herself. Yeah, that's a pretty succinct way to describe this fairly complicated book. I mean, I, one of the things that we talked about is is the world building that happens, which is really front loaded in the book. I feel like there are some things that for better or worse, just get set up in the beginning of the book. And part of the, the, for me, it was like a little bit of a slog through the first part. Um, just kind of like getting everything in place, understanding what everyone thing was and who everyone is. So it's useful to have that succinct description. Before we get into it, we're going to go over, again, some of the key elements of the book um, in a little more detail. So I mentioned Bremen. It's the imperial power. It directs and controls trade and politics of its colonies. It's kind of a pervasive backdrop. Uh, the specifics aren't important. Embassy Town. It's famous 
across the galaxy for being the home of the Arieki. Uh, the language that they speak is known to be enigmatic. And Embassy Town and the planet are so far away from Bremen that not much information gets out. So it's kind of uh, coded in like a mystique. It's been a colony for what seems like a couple hundreds of human years. And its location far away from the Imperial core means that it has a high degree of autonomy uh, in terms of managing its own affairs. Within Embassy Town, communication uh, and supplies and trade from Bremen only come every couple of years. So Bremen's political and cultural interference at Embassy Town is kept at a minimum, and life in Embassy Town has kind of been left to develop on its own. They really have their own sense of themselves culturally, there's a question about their political independence, and people in Embassy Town feel like they're a little bit of a backwater, and that kind of drives uh, Avis's uh, personality and life life decisions that she wants to escape this backwater. And, and I think it's notable also that Embassy Town refers to the mostly human. Oh yeah. Um, population that's that's set inside of a larger Ariaki city and then there's also a world like a larger world there that we barely see so it's also i mean it really does kind of capture this um very inward looking kind of colonial settlement in a certain yeah. way like embassy town refers to where the humans and then some other non-human sentient groups live but there's actually like you know the people can't breathe the uh air of most of the planet so for the most part people don't go into the wider city that they're in or outside of the city um and we only see that towards the end yeah that kind of isolation kind of like i don't know it's not it's a little bit of like it's a little bit of a ghetto in like the classical like like European city sense. I don't know if that's the best way of describing no, it. No, well, I think it, it's interesting. There's an interesting dynamic for me, and we can get more into this. Um, but this is a book about colonialism, right? And so yeah. what it made me think of also was European quarters, like colonial quarters in colonies. That's what I meant to say, not a ghetto, colonial quarters. Yes, it's like it's like the like U.S. green zone in Iraq or something like that. Um, maybe slightly less content. I mean, but like it's something like that. It's like the place where the colonists live and their world, especially in the beginning, is like is aware of the Arieki that they live among, but like is looking inwards. They're concerned with themselves for the most part. Yeah, that leads us to the Arieki. So they are described kind of colloquially by the humans in Embassy Town as hosts. They are hosting the humans. They, um, how to describe them? One of the cool things about the book is that China doesn't belabor detailed descriptions of, 
a lot of the kind of alien or science fiction elements. He just suggests them using language. Um, so we don't really know what they look like. They're kind of weird, like colony ant-like organisms, but they have weird bodies that have elements of like a horse with coral organs and giant ants. Uh, whatever, they're strange. They're, you um, get the impression that they're like really big and kind of like bulbous, maybe. Yeah. That's yeah. Like there's like a there's a like a lot of like kind of growth and size and in ways that are it, there's when I, mean, I think that in the description there's like they're very they're outside of our world completely you know yeah and he actually belabors that a little bit um or avis avis belabors that otherness that um you know through through the the narrator china sets up the situation where uh otherness is just part of being living in this galactic society because there are other races or exots exotics um so avis has this observation we thought of the ariakai in terms of stuff from an antique world we looked at our hosts and saw insect horse coral fan things those were chimeras of our own baggage there they were the hosts humming polyphonically in reveries that were utterly their own and then there is another quote that I wanted to read about how ex exots were rendered. Once I had heard a theory. It was an attempt to make sense of the fact that no matter how traveled people are, no matter how cosmopolitan, how bio biotically miscaginated their homes, they can't be insouciant at the first sight of any exot race. The theory is that we're hardwired with the terror biome that every glimpse of anything not descended from that original backwater home, our bodies knew we should not ever see. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, the encounter with the other is so important to this. Yes. And towards the beginning of the book, there's a section where she's talking about actually these other sentient species who live on the planet as being also easier to understand and communicate with than the Ariaki. There's a sense, there's a sense of differentiation where it's like, okay, maybe there's some weird interpretation that has to go on. We can't fully understand how these other beings think, but it's like the Ariaki are in a completely uh, different epistemological world that is absolutely un translatable yeah and and this this is kind of one of the central conceits of the book and and one of the central themes is translation uh so i mentioned that the language that they speak is unique and that avis's relationship to this language kind of courses through the book so the way they speak is with two mouths simultaneously. Um, and on the page, it's rendered as a language fraction, like you have a nominator, a numerator and a denominator on the page, which 
you know, that's cute. That's cool. Um, and China says, has said in interviews, like that was the, the germ of this book. He had this idea when he was 11, like an alien that speaks with two mouths. And, but he added something else to it, which is that in this language, uh, the relationship between sign and referent is direct, which means they have no way of lying. They can't use metaphor that the language is like directly tied to their thoughts. Um, and interestingly, they can't understand sounds unless they are coming from another Ariakai or another kind of linked mind. Like when humans were learning to communicate with them, they would play back recordings of the language through machines. Uh, humans would try to simulate this language by speaking. Um, humans could actually understand the language and its structure quite easily. Like there's nothing unique about the grammatic, the, the grammar, the linguistics that made it hard for humans to understand. But hearing it from a computer, hearing it from two humans, the Arikai didn't register it as anything but random noise. They did not understand that there was other sentient beings speaking to them. And so it was an enigma. And eventually, the Bremen explorers or traders, imperial, whatever, ling linguists, learned that if two humans could speak simultaneously with a degree of like cognitive thinking, it could become intelligible. And so the device here, the device is that only cloned humans trained and socialized from birth to think and act as like one person are capable of communicating with the Ariakai. And that is the whole political system of embassy town of this, these colonial quarters is that the colony trains and socializes what they call ambassadors to communicate with the Ariakai. So the ambassadors are human clones in the book. The individual clones are called doppels, are raised apart from the civilians of embassy town. They undergo like daily physical treatments to correct irregularities. They have these kind of corny names. Um, they're like concatenated. So they'll have names like Cal Vin. Cal being one of them and Vin being the other. But it's like... <laughs> Brendan, Magda. It's really silly. And they're kind of this elite cast. And they're treated, they're treated by other people. There's a, like a social... Uh, there's a taboo around treating them as two individuals. They're treated as individual, like one person. And which I think is a really, it, it comes up in interesting ways in the book. I think that there's a interesting part in the beginning of the book where Avis has a relationship with one of the, these people, Calvin. And, uh, this like kind of describes to another character sex with this person um, which I would have liked to see that as a sex scene. I was kind of like, this is a missed opportunity. Um, totally. And I want like a little more, a little, there's like a lot of talk about <laughs> sex, but you don't actually get to see it. I was like, let's just get into it. Let's see it. Um, but 
the idea is that it's not like you're having a threesome. You're having sex with one person with two bodies. Yeah, totally. And, you know, we're talking about uh, kind of otherness and translation. And I think, I think this is how, what makes this book interesting is that the otherness of the Arya Kai is, I don't know, isometric to like the otherness of, of the unknown within her society. It, it gets really interesting. Excellent. So yeah, I think for me, what was so present in this novel is that, like I said, it's a novel about colonialism. And it's really interesting for me. I kept on going back and forth to and thinking about, is this an allegory about European colonialism and our history? Or is this, do we read this as a science fiction story with its own concerns um, that don't necessarily map to our historical experience and what we know of our world? And I think that we, we can hold both of those things at different times. I don't know if that makes sense as a frame for you, Dan. I kind of think it's beside the point. Um, it's so deeply informed by European colonial history. Um, and like, this is what I love about Mievel as a writer is he doesn't need to write allegory. Yeah. Um, to tell a story that is political and exciting. Yeah. Like, it, this gives, to me, reading this, this adds resolution to my readings about European colonialism. Mm -hmm. Because it's, an, it's a thick, lived narrative. It's, it follows the life of somebody who grows up in this society and thinks through the terms that she learns, comes back, and those terms start to change as her society changes. That's the theme to me, is, is this change in perspective when you start to look past uh, inherited ways of thinking. Totally. Um, and that's rendered literally in the development of the plot. But I don't think it's an allegory about European colonialism. It's it's never quite clear, like who the who Mievel's rooting for, in in terms of like you know if, if it were an allegory, we would have uh, a clear narrative about oppression and autonomy, yeah. and that's sidelined consistently in the book. Uh, the Ariakai are not oppressed at all um, by this imperial relation. Avis has some interesting observations about Embassy Town's political economy, where she compares it to other societies that she'd seen. She's like, you know, Embassy Town may be a backwater, but we don't have the kind of slums and poverty and deprivations that I've seen on hundreds of imperial outposts throughout the galaxy. It seems like kind of a quiet provincial life 
that the worst thing about it is boredom. Um, and if, if Neville wanted to write an allegory about the horrors of colonialism, he wouldn't have written it like that. Totally. I, yeah, I completely agree. I think, I think what I was saying with that is that it doesn't map totally. And, uh, wanting to note that it's about colonialism, but it doesn't, it's not like we can be like, oh, this is something that maps onto historical experience. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because it's, I started thinking about this in the beginning of the book and where it's obviously about a colony, right? And I was like, wow, he's describing this as being really benign as a relationship between the humans and the Arieki. It's funny. It's like, that's not like, it, it's so different from what I understand of dynamics of any dynamic of like someone just showing up and deciding that they can set up a colony on someone else's land. Right. Um, and then actually through the book, it's exposed as not being benign. Right. I think that's also part of it where it's like there, it, it's true that it's not like, a. and I'm thinking about historical parallels that I don't think are allegories. Like one of the things that ideas that came up for me was thinking about um the opium war in china where um we and we'll get into this later but european powers britain didn't conquer china right at any point the balance of power was not such that they could do that but they did weaponize especially weaponize addiction in a way that i think was really interesting as a parallel and happens in the book that we'll talk about and used it to um impose a social order that they that was colonial you know and i'll and take like physical land um i don't think that i don't think this is a book about the, i'm not saying this is a book about the opium wars like i'm really not saying that but i was like wow it's like because there have been so many historical experiences of colonialism right and some of them involve full invasion and occupation some of them are settler colonialism but that was the one where i was like oh yeah because the ariaki are are portrayed as being uh in some ways more powerful than the humans there right and and the reason is because they simply control the infrastructure of embassy town like the technology that they produce is kind of vague like biotech call it bio rigging like they're they're growing technology in these fields in their cities and the technology is used for everything like um there's giant uh atmosphere production coming from these like organic lung things that cover this embassy town uh people have prosthetics that are bio-rigging and this is the export from embassy town is this stuff that the Ariakai produce and yet without the constant maintenance embassy town would not be able to survive and it's never really described what the Ariakai get out of this relationship um from the get-go and so i guess it's an open question whether there is a military threat backing this up or not it, it's, I, I think it's addressed a little bit. And part of it seems like what they get is part of the way, going back to language, like the way that they use language is using, using things in the world as similes or as incorporating things into the world into their language to refer to them. 
That's right. And so a big part of the book is Avis, the main character, is a simile. Um, specifically the simile being, I don't have it right in front of me, but the girl who was hurt in the dark and ate what was given to her. There was a human girl who in pain ate what was given her in an old room built for eating in which eating had not happened for a time. Shortened to the girl who ate what was given to her. Max, I think that's so right um, that that the trade is cultural for the Arikai, that they actually do find great immense value in the the possibilities that are opened up by the presence of humans, by by things not of their world. Um, and Avis has, I think, a, a really interesting observation about that. So Avis addresses the reader. This is a true story I'm telling, but I, I am telling it, and that entails certain things. So the host cared about everything, but language most of all. Um, that kind of captures the sense that uh, they get something out of the humans. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not material, but it's cultural, symbolic. Man, thanks for bringing that in. I, I, didn't, I didn't quite get that. And, and I think to circle back to, I want to like dwell a little longer on the question of the allegory, which is to say, yeah. to note another, because I feel like this is important in discussions specifically in science fiction and fantasy, because there's a history, I guess why I was talking about it as allegories, there's a history in science fiction and fantasy of the depiction of other species of sentient beings as mapping onto race, like human understanding oh, yeah. race, right? In yeah. like ways that are fucked up and like racist, right? So it's like yes. the classic one is like, you know, orcs in Lord of the Rings are this like savage culture that is just inherently and ontologically evil and can be killed, <laughs> right? It's like they yeah. are like savages, especially like the way that it's been used in other texts, like after Tolkien and stuff like that. It's like really like maps to like European depictions of like black bodies and orcs or something are treated in these works as being like fully disposable, killable. It's fine. They're evil. Right. And that happens also. So that's fantasy, but that also happens in science fiction where science fiction and fantasy are, are being written. They're about our world. And I think it's hard not to map those things. I think this book is avoiding. I mean, it's not clear that like, again, that this is like the Ariaki refer to a specific race or like a specific historical experience. Um, and I don't think the point is that like, I think especially with the depiction of them as being so um, like cognitively different than us, I just wanted to mark that and say that like, I don't think that's what's, I don't think that's the point, at least that's how I read it. I think he does that really well to, to avoid it. So it, are you saying it's an intervention into the genre? Yeah, I'd say so. I think that it's written in a way that's pretty aware of that history, or at least the way that I'm reading it. And again, part of it is like that it really sticks to Avis's perspective 
Yes. And again, like her false conceptions about her society and how they interact with this other group are exposed as being false during the book. And I think that's a really important part of it. That is, ah, that is to me, that is, that is the theme of this book. The narratives, the received narratives are both are false and that things that are previously unimaginable or undescribable emerge as describable. Like we can translate. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, it's like there's a transformation. She's being transformed. She affects she helps to affect a change among the Ariaki. She's also changed by that. It also, and she never fully transcends that. It's never like also like, oh, she becomes fully enlightened and learns the truth or something. It's like her understanding of the world changes, you know? So let's let's kind of catalog some of those changes that she goes through. I think we've we've set up uh, a pretty rich like flavor for for how this book feels and some of the themes. Yeah. I I think um maybe the way to do that is let's talk about I mean this is elicited by crisis. So let's talk about that crisis, right? Cuz I think that you know the structure is that there's this group of people who are similes and they make contact with a group of the Ariaki who um are it's a really I love this description of the um festival of lies. Oh yeah. Which is like where humans go into the Ariaki part of the city and they're having a festival and the humans lie. And like they hold up, you know, like a piece of colored paper or something that's green and they're like, this is red. And then the Ariaki are like like thrown into like just this like ecstatic uh, feeling because again, like in their cognitive use of language, it's impossible to, or supposedly impossible to describe, to, to lie. It's impossible to describe a gap between experienced reality and language that doesn't exist. And it's interesting, like even before the drug part was, Uh, introduced i was like oh yeah this seems like a hallucinatory experience there's like this disjuncture between two essential parts of like fully joined reality that you experience and then it describes the ariaki attempting to do that attempting to lie and kind of getting close and not being able to um and the the group of people who are similes become uh, really wrapped up with a group of Ariaki who are pushing that as far as possible and using these human similes who are literally part of language, who they refer to in their language to um, try to describe something that is not real. Yeah. And Avis recognizes that this is a site of change where she thought there was no change, that the Ariakai, who she still does not understand, and she's never quite curious about them from on their own terms. It's clear that they are they have agency and they are trying to do something. 
And that seems to be a dissonance for her. Like, just like the lie or the possibility of a lie is thrilling and intoxicating to the Aryakai, the suggestion that the world could be other is an intense draw for Avis. And non-monolithic, right? Like, the, there is a group of Aryakai. And it refers to, like, political factions within them that, like, we don't fully understand, right? That, like, that she's not able to comprehend. This is later in the book, but I love this phrase. It's, like, dripping out of China's mouth through Avis. A parallel economy of narratives, counterfeits, and revenge. Mm -hmm. Just that, like, sexy factionalism intrigue. It's, like, so thrilling to China and therefore to Avis. Mm -hmm. This becomes a site of political conflict. Uh, Sile's arrival as a linguist shakes things up. His theories about language uh, become of, of great interest to the, amba uh, the ambassadors and staff. And it's, it's unclear at first why. But I think what you were saying about the, tr the, the balance of power between Bremen embassy town in the area Kai was really thrown up in the air by Siles theories. And I think basically what it, and Abbas doesn't know this, so we don't know this until the end of the book, but Siles theory is that it's actually quite possible for the area Kai to lie. It's just that they've never been taught to. But what, what Abbas experiences is just this heated sense of intrigue and like something's happening. Something really big is happening that a lot of people who I don't, quite know, they really care, and they really think it's a bad thing if the Aryakai learn to lie. So during a festival of lies, um, one of the Aryakai who's pushing this ability to lie is assassinated. And that's kind of the first rupture in Embassy Town. Then there's a second rupture that happens. Yeah, so this is kind of the start of the like the present part of the book that kind of moves forward. Um and it starts it, it gets like it's an exciting book, like it's action packed and I think that this is like where it really picks up. The new ambassador, one of these paired people comes from the Bremen, the colonial power, and they like essentially like they're not they were not two people who are raised as one person. They're two people with a fully differentiated sense of self who are able through technology and like one person's abilities to speak together and kind of like there's like a suggestion that there's some minor kind of like mind reading thing going on that they're able to uh one of them is able to kind of like understand the other person's thoughts to speak this language where two people need to speak simultaneously with purpose right yeah and this paired person, Ezra, starts talking and there's an immediate response from the Aryakai and they immediately start like they're thrown into an ecstasy that parallels what we described at the Festival of Lies, but more so and immediately start demanding this person to speak more. And it becomes obvious that the speech of this person because there's this like lack of it's actually two fully differentiated individuals talking causes this kind of like 
ontological psychological rupture that is like a drug. And so the language itself is a language drug, which is kind of what I was referring to before with like this idea of the weaponized addiction of the opium wars. Yes. It's like it, it, this language, this person's language, Ezra's language immediately spreads throughout this entire city and then um, the world. And through not just the beings of the Ariakai, but like their architecture, which is this like fleshy living architecture and their technology and everything is like biological. There becomes this immediate widespread addiction to this language that just causes a total breakdown of both societies and I think this is where the violence of the colony is laid bare, right? Like within, like very quickly, um, the like embassy town humans are just like slaughtering Ariekai who are like massing in order to hear this language. There's a really horrifying scene. This one for me was like a real like linchpin scene in terms of like, I think exposing some of the, horrors of what was possible which is where they kind of like capture one of these addicted ariakai so it's describing like capturing one of these addicted ariakai and leading it they're always referred to as by it their gender is unknown into kind of a laboratory and one of the characters speaks and says take it apart and see if you can find out what's happening inside in its bone house they glance at Bren and me when it hears Ezra, see if you can find out anything. Maybe we can scent it that way. Like that, by that leadership, we would murder a host. Not even in self-defense, but calculation. Embassy town became something new. I was in awe of Mag and Da for their bravery. It was a dreadful act. Magda had known it had to come from them. I don't think any of us thought we'd discover in the Ariaki's innards any secrets to ad its addiction, but we'd try. And two, we were all going to die soon, and it was time for new paradigms, and Magda gave us one. They took it on themselves to tell us what it meant to be at war. They gave us a dirty hope. It was one of the most selfless things I've ever seen. Oh, yeah, that was a dark scene. It's like, I mean, it's describing this like Dr. Mangala, like uh, just like being willing to like perform surgery on a like living being. Um, and again, like without any clear purpose, just like cutting it open to like in hopes that maybe there'd be something right. Um, it's just totally horrific. And I think the irony of like calling it a dirty hope or a selfless act uh, comes through. So there is so much going on in this second half of the book. And so many examples of these themes of like, what happens when the world ruptures? And that's a perfect, perfect example. I mentioned at the beginning that I thought that this was, there were parallels to Nieval's work in October, mm -hmm. the book he wrote about the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we see it through the way Abbas is transformed. 
she has a lot of descriptions of like what the mood is in Embassy Town. One example, people wandered through the streets in a kind of utopian uncertainty, knowing that everything was different, but unsure in what sort of place they live now. We'd always lived in a ghetto, in a city that didn't belong to us, but to beings far more powerful and strange. We lived among gods, little tiny gods, but gods compared to us, considering what was at their disposal and our disposal, and ignored the fact. Now they'd change, and we had no way to understand that. All we could do was wait. Embassy Towner's foolish discussions were as meaningless right then as the sounds of birds. So that's kind of right after um, this addiction starts to spread. But then as the crisis unfolds into the infrastructure and they realize that like their survival was at stake, um, she kind of finds herself seeking out affinities with people who are trying to fix things. And so here's the here's one moment of transformation. There were assassinations and collapses of relationships. There were many marriages. I had my own hurried liaisons. Really, those first days are hard to talk about. The heroes who ensured that Embassy Town wasn't swept away by insistent, addicted hosts were the clerks who set up structures while the rest of us failed not to fall apart. A little later, I became something again, something important to Embassy Town. Just then, I was not. Um, so I think... Probably most people who are hearing this can relate to this feeling of like becoming in a moment of cataclysm. I'm thinking specifically about the contexts of COVID and uh, the George Floyd uprisings. Mm -hmm. So I, I live in Minneapolis uh, and I live on one of the blocks that was um, kind of an epicenter of rioting and fires and just general chaos. And the past month of my life has been uh, suffused with this this feeling about, like, the world's at a break. Am I somebody who's helping making sure it goes in the way that is that I want? Or am I somebody who's sitting back and watching? Um, and so Avis eventually becomes somebody who is trying to make changes. Uh, and so she's finding, like, the right factions that she wants to work with and just, just fix in infrastructure. And, and that's kind of this, that's the same space that um, when I was reading October, I got a sense that China was really paying attention to is like, how do people make decisions in chaos to create a new society? Yeah, but it's, it's so interesting, because it's like, I think of this phrase, the heroes. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's like, again, feels ironic. It's kind of describing the people oh, who yeah. are like maintaining the power of humans in this colonial order. And one of the things that they're doing is like ensuring that they have like food and supplies by like going out with recordings of this like language drug and like the God, the God, drug. the God drug and trading it for the stuff that they want. Right. They're like, they're like taking advantage of these like hopelessly addicted beings. So I think it's, it's really well done because it's not like, it's not like, Oh, the people who are trying to save the world. It's like, what is the world like for the like colonial administrators of embassy town? The world is their human population who they decide 
very quickly in crisis is worth more than this like other group of beings that they live around. Right. Yeah. Um, but then also like, but then she towards the end of the book does come into conflict with that group. Right. And then she like actually like ends up, um, in a way that I think is very hopeful and like a little, like I, it's like, there's a little bit of like a happy ending thing going on. Um, it's like dark, but like, you know, it does kind of like wrap up, but like she ends up working with like a rebel group of like humans and Ariekai, uh, who are result to like attempting to resolve this in a different way, specifically in conflict with, um, the group that's taken over embassy town. Yes. And the moment I think that happens. Um, so in this crisis, she's talking to one of the staff, the, one of the representatives from Bremen who kind of explicates the relationship between Bremen and embassy town. Um, that he's, he is an appointed like crisis specialist, like his appointment in embassy town is like, um, he gets, he gets put in when a colony is on the verge of independence, which Bremen as a long, long lived imperial power knows how to predict. Um, and he just manages whether it's independence or something on favorable terms to Bremen. And he tells Abbas that, um, Bremen's interest in embassy town is not so much the bio-rigging that they get from the Ariakai. It's the fact that they are at the absolute outpost of known navigable space. And embassy, uh, Bremen wants to start exploring, and they want to turn Embassy Town into a port. All of a sudden, Abbas realizes like saving Embassy Town's human population means nothing because if Bremen comes in, and turns it into a port, they'll have no autonomy. Their freedoms, their way of life is going to go, and she's like, well, do I want that? I'm not sure I liked Embassy Town the way it was, but I'm not sure I want it to be this way. So she takes that conversation into this renegade, or that understanding into this renegade faction, and uh, one of the ambassadors says something to her. Um about the kind of ruling faction's plans. Even if it did work, you saw what happened to the Ariakai when Ezra ended without their dose. So what about when the relief from Bremen gets here? When do we leave? And then he indicates to one of the Ariakai, what happens then to them? And the, the chapter ends. And it's actually the first time in the book that anybody has expressed empathy or what you could call empathy with the Ariakai, just a concern for them as autonomous people. Abbas doesn't respond, but it's, it's kind of a shift into, into this new understanding that like, you know, of the many breaches of her previous worldview, like the fact that you can, that these aren't gods that they're just sentient beings. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It exposes, I mean, it's like exposes vulnerability 
um, but also guess human. I mean, I don't want to use even the term humanness. There's humanness, I guess, is the core of this, but like a value of life or something. So, you know, it's really, it's interesting because I, I feel like it turns into a story of insurgency, right? Um, and the other, there's so many interesting parts to this. Um, and it's one that the resolution of the book is through language. Um, but then the other really interesting part in terms of language and insurgency is this group called the Absurd, who are the Ariekai who, in order to avoid the addiction that they experience, remove, like physically tear off the wings that they used to hear. Um, so they can no longer receive this drug, but also because their language, like they think through language, it, um, they perceive themselves as like, they're like cut off entirely from communication, from interpretation. Um, and there are these like, uh, and they start like attacking humans. They start attacking other Ariakai. They like form like an insurgent army, basically. Um, I think it's a powerful depiction. It really, again, not to not to map uh, allegory, but really brought to mind to me like the um, marks of insurgency and the marks of war. And like, I'm thinking of. Um, of people who've lost eyes to rubber bullets and Chile and Kashmir. Um, this comes up in a book that we'll actually want to read um, pretty soon is Arundhati Roy's Ministry of Most Happiness, where she talks about just all of the people who've been blinded by rubber bullets and the insurgency in Kashmir. Um, and it's this really powerful thing of like losing an organ of perception in um, like a struggle to like for autonomy over your body and where you live, uh, um, is, is really amazing. Um, and these, uh, Ariyaki, what, what are called the absurd because they lose their connection to language become really important because the resolution that is, that Avis arrives at with the Ariaki she's working at is finding a way to translate language, is finding a way to supersede this understanding that the language of the Ariaki is like, is the same thing as reality. Um, and I think. And, and so, and the, and one of the ways that, that that happens is because these absurd, like, are able to gesture, right? So the gesture becomes really important in language. Like, just pointing to something becomes language. Um, the pronoun of saying, like, that by, like, moving your arm or something, um, which is something that, like, doesn't exist in their culture previously. And they're able to employ that to create another like intentionally enter into another kind of cognitive break or like epistemological break where they um are able to re-employ their language as something that like instead of meaning something specific points to something right 
And I think that's really powerful because I've been thinking about that a lot with our language um, and the politics of that. It's like something that's come up for me a lot where I'm like, in thinking about politics, I feel like it's really important for me to understand that when we, especially when we use a noun, when we call something, when we say that something is something, right? When we say that like something is an expression of freedom or like when we talk about colonialism, right? We're point, we're gesturing towards something, you know, we're to, and I think that it's interesting because we don't always, like we often think of our language as mapping like to something wholly existent and real. And so the way that's depicted as this, these other beings arriving at that, I think, and the use of that in overcoming this addiction, this like, this like rupture of thought is a really useful way to think about how, how use, how can we also use gesture, like understand language as gesture. They were world sick as meanings yawned. Anything was anything now. No wonder it made them sick. They were like new vampires, retaining memories while they sloughed off lives. They'd never be cured. They went quiet one by one and not because their crisis had ended. They were in a new world. It was the world we live in. Yeah. So that, that, breach that openness is paralleled between Avis and the Ariekai. She literally teaches them to lie. Uh, she explicitly wants to make herself uh, into a metaphor rather than a simile. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in an interview, Mievel describes this book or the arc of this book is the dialectical shift from simile to metaphor. When she does that, or the way she, the breakthrough that she makes, she's like, try, uh, so she's trying to do this with this group of uh, the Ariaki faction who are trying to cure themselves and want to learn how to lie. But she's having trouble. And finally she talks to one of the ambassadors that she's with, the insurgent ambassadors. And she's like, do they know that I am talking to them? Do they know that I, a single human, is a sentient being who is talking to them? And the ambassador is kind of uncomfortable. And he's like, well, I mean, yeah, they kind of know. And she's like, but do they know? And he's like, well, it's actually something that we haven't been that uh, eager to make clear to them. And she's like, are you kidding me? Make it clear to them. And so there's a conversation between the Arakai and the ambassador. And she watches them, the Arakai, have a develop an understanding. And it's that moment where, like, Abbas also realizes that the entire construct that that there was absolutely no communication possible mm-hmm. was a political monopoly on communication. Yeah. 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 Like, like, so, you know, she is not ecstatic at this, uh, at this breach because her, her pathway 
to like revelation is is incremental and like like slow like that's how the book is told but that i think is like the final moment where she becomes a political actor like in this process she says you know i against every inclination that i'd had for many years had no choice but to take control i don't think urgency is a bacillus that can cross exotypes but it was as if the ariakai understood something in me had changed so again there's this parallel of revelation of breaking into a new world yeah i think that's really important it's not like she like teaches them something it's like there's a I mean, again, in, in Spinozist terms, they like, they activate something in each other, right? It's like, there's like, there's like something that touches that causes a transformation of both of these actors that allows them to, to function towards one end, at least in one moment, um, and causes kind of like a parallel transformation. Um, that is really beautiful. You know, it's like, I mentioned that I think it's a little bit of a neat, hopeful wrap up, but um, it's nicely done as that. It is. You know, the book, the book ends that politically, there is a revolution, a resolution based on this change in, in the language communication capacities of the Ariakai. One of the Ariakai that she's been working with very quickly begins to speak English or Ubik Anglo or whatever, Anglo-Ubik. I think it's really, I think also in terms of the colonialism thing, it's really telling that the language is specifically noted as being a descendant of English, right? The, for the ending, kind of the, the peak of the ending for me was this moment where the Ariaki, who's kind of the main Ariaki character, um, gives a speech, which is not something that you see. There's not extended language from them prior to this point. Um, and it's very poetic. It's very beautiful. I'm going to just read the second half of it. Before the humans came, we didn't speak so much because we were like this one, who years ago was the girl who was hurt in darkness and ate what was given to her. We were like her. You decide why we were like her and why we were not like her why she's like herself or is not. We've been like all things. We left the city during the drug time and speak more now. Before the humans came, we didn't speak. We've been like countless things. We've been like all things. We've been like the animals over Embassy Town in the direction of which I raise my gift wing, which is a speaking you'll come to understand. We didn't speak, we were mute. We only dropped the stones we mentioned out of our mouths opened our mouths and had the birds we described fly out. We were vectors. We were the birds eating in mindlessness. We were the girl in darkness, only knowing it when we weren't anymore. We speak now, or I do, and others do. You've never spoken before. You will. You'll be able to say how the city is a pit and a hill and a standard and an animal that hunts and a vessel on the sea and the sea and how we are fish on in it, not like the man who swims weakly with fish, but the fish with which he swims, the water, the pool. I love you. You light me, warm me. You are sons. You have never spoken before. That is truly beautiful. It's such a contrast with 
some of Neville's other turns of language. And I, I think that speaks, you know, just to his, uh, his range as a writer Mm -hmm. that, that he can write that in the same book as all these kind of Mm -hmm. juicy, like political leftist, like jargon, corny naming devices, weird monsters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a a real range. And I think it's a, I, yeah, I feel it, it. It's a beautiful description of coming into political consciousness. Right. Um, Maybe. I don't know. I don't know exactly how to read it. And I come up and I read it. I'm also like, again, like going back to this allegory thing and being like parts of this feel weird to me because it's like, if we impose this allegory, is it like, what does it mean that they didn't speak before or that they were mindless before their contact with uh, humans, you know? But that does pose a problem, but I think it's a good it's a good question to ask as we ask, like, why do we read science fiction? How can science fiction help us think politically in ways that other modes of writing don't? Do you think that that feeds into that question? I, to- I totally think it does. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's like, what does this, what does this activate? How do we use, how do we use this? Right? Maybe. Yeah. Which is the question we asked after we, we discussed the unseen and I think that we use it as, as you said, it, it's a story about coming into political consciousness. I think Abbas's transformation is is what I find useful and relatable, you know, especially in the context of, of an uprising in cities across the country and in my own city. The science fiction element, the fact that we have this device of another species, it's it's both a joy and a limit like we can't it's a story so we don't map ourselves onto the ariakai there's they are symbolic for us um they are a metaphor for something some process they're not direct references to something i think that that's one of the successes of the book that we don't have to we can ask these questions about what they represent. Is he rendering them silent or conveniently transformed? Or is he just suggesting something about the process of transformation? Um, and just like Abbas sees her world anew by breaking these barriers of like enforced socialization and inherited worldviews, their entire ability to conceive of themselves is broken through this passage, through crisis, like this long period of of exploration and sense of something was new, of trying, of incubation. And then a cataclysm happens that devastates them as, as a people. And yet they come and emerge and something new is possible. Like that's the metaphor. Yeah, I think that's really well said. It's the transformation doesn't come from like being taught by people. It comes from struggle, right? Or from like the experience of having to like to work through crisis. And then and I think also importantly, the transformation is not like becoming better, 
right? It's like, it's not presented that like it, the way that they used language before was less, I don't know, good in any way. And they like learned this thing and now they're better. It's like, it's like they, and everyone in the book is, are forced to adapt. It's like everyone's transformation is allowed and made necessary through the crisis. And it's not necessarily a useful question of like, would that have been good uh, in the absence of a colony? Would that have been good in the absence of a crisis? It's like, this was, it's the response to, to crisis, to struggle and to conflict. I wanted, we could bring in two other texts um, or one text and one author thinking about like what science fiction can do uh, and, and why I think this is a unique mode. And, and I would recommend this as a political book um, for anybody who's willing to sit with the, the genre conventions. Um, so the text that I'm thinking about is a short story by Ted Chang in his newest collection, Exhalation. I can't remember what the story is called, but it is uh, a story that where the narrator imagines a relationship between a Christian missionary and a young man in kind of an un, undefined, uh, like, he was like a young man in a tribal society in Africa. Um, and the process of learning to read. It's mm. very compassionate and very thoughtful, and it explores the same transformation that happens when you learn a technology for thinking differently. And the young man has to figure out what he wants to accept and reject. He has no interest in theology, no interest in Christianity, but he's fascinated by reading. He's fascinated by what it can do for this missionary. He takes and learns these things and is trying to express his revelations to his friends and family, and they don't understand. They're not interested. They reject him as, you know, having been colonized. And yet he is experiencing how writing helps him think differently. Mm -hmm. And that's addictive to him. That's transformative for him. He doesn't think it's better. He just knows that it's powerful mm -hmm. and exciting. And so he learns to read. And it's a science fiction story um, in its own way. And I love that story. Uh, and it asks these same questions like, is this uh, saying that we all, like that colonization was correct because now people can learn to read? Absolutely not. But it's describing actually just what happened. What happens to people? What can happen to people? Yeah, that's really interesting for me because this book really brought up... I, I am an adult educator. Um, and I've worked with people who, like, cannot read and write, um, which is really interesting. It's like, I mean, I've worked with people who, like, have not been able to sign their names, you know? And there's a actual like different way of relating to knowledge and cognition and language um, that comes with reading and writing that 
we don't have to put a value judgment on. Like I think, um, you know, many people who don't read and write, like have incredible like memories for language, for example. And like, as a language teacher, I've seen people like who, uh, who don't read and write, like eight, who are able to like pick things up really quickly. Um, because you, use your memory you rely on like language and like a different way of and like a like way of relationality and like tying memories of language to specific interactions with people rather than abstract thoughts of language so actually like and you know there's been writing about this but like you know socially as societies or large groups of people learn reading and writing or start to use it more frequently there's ways that like like lived memory really changes. And I've seen some of that process in people. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting one. And it's really interesting to, to, you know, relate to that. Um, especially without being like, it's bad that people are illiterate and it's good when they become literate. Right. Um, oh, but also not like mourning the lost innocence of like people when who are like um able to use reading for something that they need in their lives you know what i mean it's a really interesting process to see people going through as individuals and like have been involved in amazing um it's i think this book explores that in in a, in a fun mm-hmm exciting way uh the other the other author i wanted to bring in is ursula k Le Guin, who's another genre writer who thinks about otherness mm-hmm. and i i'm not thinking of any book in particular of hers but otherness is a theme she returns to often and Unlike Mievel in Embassy Town, she will frequently dive right into impossible perspectives. There's a short story she has describing what it's like to be a tree um, watching cars drive by in a field. And there's this bizarre um, imagination of like slowing down and speeding up time to change the perspective from the driver, like just weird stuff, a truly impossible perspective. Another story I read that talks about being a, I think like a lab mouse or just an alien that's being experimented on by humans, put through mazes and forced to eat things. And it emerges that there's the mouse or the alien, the experimented being is trying to communicate, but it communicates using body language and dance. And it watches the, you know, four-limbed, upright postured, vertically mouthed entity communicate with sounds. But the experimented upon narrator only observes its utilitarian, grotesque motions. And I think that as an author, Le Guin addresses these issues, but from a differently empathetic 
position mm-hmm. or that that if if somebody were to turn be turned off by medieval or what we've described as this really cerebral take on on these themes Le Guin is a is a writer who I, I would recommend to you know my parents we're definitely reading Le Guin yeah we will be <laughs> You've been listening to the Unseen Book Club. Music by production duo X Official. Check out their music on Bandcamp at xofficialexo.bandcamp.com or on SoundCloud at x-official. For our next two episodes, we'll be reading Eduardo Galliano's Memory of Fire trilogy with guest Andreas Black. If you like what we're up to, please get in touch with us on Twitter at Unseen Book Club or email us at unseenbookclub at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.